This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. There's no ROI on TMI. That's why TD Ameritrade created a learning experience that will actually learn with you. Curated from their vast library of exclusive content, it customizes to fit your investing goals, interests, and needs, so you get exactly the information you need and none of the information you don't. Get started at tdameritrade.com education. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com education. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job, not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Themes propel earnings. Earnings propel stocks. Oh, we see that every day, including this one. Dow dipped 28 points. This beat the climb 0.11%. NASDAQ edged down 0.07%. Now, while it may be hard to predict politics or interest rates or current events, it's a lot easier to bet on great themes if you want to make great money. <laughs> this morning on Squawk on the Street, we had the great privilege to interview Dave Cody. He's the former CEO of Honeywell, who's now the executive chairman of a company called Vertiv. You probably don't know Vertiv. It's a data center hardware play that's merging with GS Holdings. That's a special purpose acquisition company, or SPAC, run by Cody. Now, this guy's a phenomenal manager. He consistently crushed the S&P 500 when he was running Honeywell. But when he retired and turned the reins over to Darius Adamchek, many people thought, well, he might be done running business. I was thinking he might be. Nah, no, not for Cody. You see, it's simply too much fun. He likes business too much, so he didn't quit. He raised some money, looked around for a business that seemed to have the wind at its back, a business that's growing much faster than the broader U.S. economy, a business that's not hostage to global trade or politics or the Federal Reserve. He came up with the data center, in particular data centers that can deliver digital information at lightning speeds, cut down latency, from what's known as the edge, the outer portion of the network. From there, Cody looked for a data center equipment play that was putting itself up for sale. That was his reasoning, that was his path, and that's how he found Vertiv. Now, why was Dave interested in this particular company? Was the business a fantastic enterprise? Well, he'd probably be the first to tell you no, not yet. And he, he brought in a fellow named Rob Johnson, who's from the sector, to take over as CEO. Dave compared it, when I asked him about it, to Honeywell a couple of years into the turnaround that he'd led. Uh, Dave was confident that Vertiv could only be a platform for spectacular growth. Over the years, I have learned a tremendous amount about business from Dave Cody. For example, one thing he always liked about Honeywell was its aerospace business. Aerospace grows faster than most industries, and the long-term secular growth of the industry is levered to a powerful trend the middle classification of the developing world. Simply put, most people have never even set foot on an airplane, but over time, more and more of them can afford to fly. Dave says the data center is even better. He thinks that the data center traffic could grow at a 21% clip for multiple years. He sees the volume increasing exponentially, uh, especially when you consider that 90% of all data in history has been created over the past two years. By 2025, there should be something like 6 billion mobile users and 75 billion Internet of Things-enabled devices. That's up from 23 billion last year. That's a pretty powerful secular trend, right? Now, is Vertiv a can't-miss proposition? There's no such thing as can't-miss. But it sure seems to have a better shot at succeeding than most businesses. I like to crib from the methodical and the rigorous. That's Cody. That's Vertiv. 
We're always searching for powerful sector themes like this kind of name, themes that work regardless of the macro situation. They tend to pop up in some really crazy, nutty places. Uh, So you always got to be ready to pounce the moment you find them. For example, in last week's game plan, I don't know if you remember, but I told you to buy some AutoZone, AZO, because I expected a strong quarter. Today, the stock exploded higher, up 7%. Did I recommend it because AutoZone is the best retailer in the world? Of course not. I pounded the table because it's the best run auto parts chain. And the average car on the road is now 12 years old, which means it needs a ton of maintenance. The best way to take care of an aging car, you do it yourself. AutoZone's the best do-it-yourself retailer with an incredibly consistent track record. Is that enough? In an era where almost anything can be crushed by online competition, you need more than a good track record. In particular, you need convenience and you need the lowest price, which is what AutoZone can give you with its huge selection of cheaper private label car parts. I mean, do you really care what name is on it? My favorite thing about AutoZone, though, just like Dave Cody believes in himself and his business, first with Honeywell and now Vertiv, AutoZone's chairman and CEO Bill Rhodes puts his money where his mouth is. That's why the company bought back $450 million worth of stock over the past quarter. AutoZone has been one of the most voracious repurchasers of its own stock. They still got $1.3 billion left in their current authorization. Now, yesterday I talked about destructive buybacks. Remember, I I really zeroed in on retail. I said that both Macy's and Kohl's have spent billions buying back declining stocks, effectively setting their money on fire. The difference between a foolish buyback like Macy's and a smart buyback like AutoZone, it's like any other stock purchase. You have to ask yourself if the shares are actually worth buying. AutoZone's a low-priced retailer that's riding a powerful secular theme. Its buyback turned out to be a, a, I don't want to really use the term no-brainer, but... Oh, you get what I mean. Uh, And that's why the stock soared so much today. It was the biggest gain in the S&P 500. Again, we're looking for secular themes and do-it-yourself auto fits the bill perfectly. Let me give you one more, one that I want you to remember if there's no trade deal with China this weekend, and that is 5G. This quarter, we've seen explosive growth in the 5G wireless cohort. This is the first inning. Now, I point that out because a lot of times you're like, oh, we're only in the third inning, only fourth inning. Nuh-uh, first inning. We know there's a lot riding on 5G. We've got a prospective merger in this country between T-Mobile and Sprint. That would be fantastic for shareholders, although a bunch of states' attorney general oppose it on antitrust grounds, because it would be a uh, four-to-three deal. T-Mobile and Sprint say it will result in better prices for consumers. More importantly, it allows them to spend more on 5G. Although historically, when you reduce the number of competitors in an industry from four to three, customers, uh, well, they end up getting squeezed. You know what? I would argue T-Mobile and Sprint can't really compete with the two titans of wireless, AT&T and Verizon, especially when it comes to 5G build-out, unless they're allowed to merge. Right now, we only have two major players. This deal creates the third. Okay, so we got China trying to, re, uh, trying to assert 5G leadership with its government demanding supremacy. We have the Europeans trying to catch up with companies like Ericsson and Nokia. Basically, 5G is an industry at war with itself. And you know who are the arms merchants? I got four of them. Skywork Solutions, Corvo. Qualcomm, and Marvell Technologies. I think any one of these stocks is worth investing in for the powerful multi-year theme. You should own one of them. Of course, these companies have a ton of business in China, which means they sink or swim depending on the outcome of the trade talks themselves. Not the rumors of the outcome, but the outcome. What matters to me, though, is not the trade talks, but the theme itself. If we don't get a deal, if there are higher tariffs, well, sure, all four of the big big 5G chipmakers will see the stocks go lower. But will that mess with the theme? Will it stop 5G? Absolutely not. Like the data center, like do-it-yourself auto repair, 5G stops for no government. The bottom line, at a time like this, we need big apolitical themes that work no matter what. And the best of them should work for years and years and years. So when these stocks get hit, you buy into weakness because you know they'll be able to make a comeback 
as secular growers almost always will. Jerry in Missouri. Jerry. Hey, Jim. Thanks for all you do for us. Uh, thank you, Jerry. Jim, I'm long on Viacom B, which is now Viacom C. Mm-hmm. My brokerage has transferred all my shares over to Viacom C, and I've watched the share prices plummet for the last several days. But Viacom B shares have been increasing on large volume. So I called my brokerage, and they can't explain why Viacom B is still trading with the volume. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you can explain. Well, we, also- we know from David Faber, it is Viacom C. It's the only one we should focus on. I don't know what kind of arbitrage is going on with the B, but Viacom E is it. This stock has been, Viacom C, this stock's been terrible. Uh, my travel trust owns it. I'm going to try to talk about it tomorrow when I do my conference call. Uh, it is an embarrassment. I do believe that the, the stock is cheap. That's not been enough so far. I am not throwing in the towel. But I am aware, as you are, that this has been a bad stock pick. I listened to Bob Backus the other day with, with uh, David Faber. I thought that David uh, was tough on him. Dave just said he was fair. I agree. Richard in Washington. Richard! Hey! Booyah! Hey, Jim. So, uh, with Ferrari, uh, the ticker number race buyback program and their third quarter results indicating like a 9% up in revenue. And like the 0.3% net in industrial debt. What do you suggest with this stock? Is it a good buy or a hold? And that is um, Ferrari. Uh, I yeah. think it's a very good situation. You know what? I, I, I like this one at the beginning and we caught a double and then I walked away and that was wrong. This is just a very steady, solid situation. I know the company. I've done a lot of work on it since I initially uh, went to work on it. And I think the world of it. I think it's very good. Bill in Kentucky, please, Bill. Hello. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Of course. Thank you. I'm just, uh, I, I want you to get my back on something. I immediately bought uh, Charles Schwab shares on October the 1st uh, when it was announced that they would give away free, uh, it would be commission free, okay. not cost free. And then uh, a few weeks later, I, saw, I sold uh, one fifth of them at a very nice profit. But, and it still had the same amount that I originally invested. But now it's uh, almost the middle of December and they've gone nowhere. Should I sell the rest? No, or just no, it's digesting in? what's going to be a great move. I think it's a terrific 2020 play. I would I would stay long. Why? Not because of the brokerage business, but because it's tremendous asset gather. Maybe the best in the business. Marco in Florida. Marco. Hi, Jim. Marco. Back in July, you recommended Diamondback Energy. You said it had way more room to go. I bought it at 106.75, and I have a loss of 21%. I was wondering if I should sell it or hold it. No, I, I've been wrong on the energy stocks, as I mentioned, uh, and I'll, you'll hear from me later in the show again. I was too bullish about energy. I thought that they would, would bottom, and that Fang had Diamondback Energy had the best growth ca- characteristics. Uh, that is some degree true, but my uh, bullishness in oil was incorrect, and uh, I got it wrong. Sometimes you get it wrong. I got oil wrong, and I'm not going to stop beating myself about it because I should have realized that uh, that the group is just not dead. Right. Strong themes propel strong stocks higher. Right now, we need apolitical themes that work no matter what. Oh, man, money tonight. Which sectors are positioned to roar in 2020? I'm going off the charts to find out. 
then. Yeti has certainly cooled off over the past few months. But could big coolers still mean big bucks in an uncertain market? I'm eyeing the company's potential. And miss last night's Eagles game? Hmm, nice win. I don't know how you could <laughs> after all my tweets. I'm eyeing the company that makes the connection possible. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Maybe you've heard of Slack, but what is it? Slack is your new HQ. One place for everyone at your company to find answers, share updates, and stay caught up. Slack, where work happens. Get started at slack.com. With the S&P 500 up 25% for 2019, you kind of wonder, can we keep climbing into 2020? But you know what? I think that's the wrong approach. Instead of worrying about the whole market, I think you got to be specific, sector specific, just like I said at the top, because some of them are absolutely positioned to roar next year. And that's why tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Dan Fitzpatrick. He's that terrific technician who's the founder of Stock Market Mentor, as well as being my colleague at RealMoney.com, where I blog, to get a better read on the industries that could have serious upside potential next year that, frankly, have been left behind in 2019. In particular, Fitzpatrick likes, get this, the metals and mining, base material and energy stocks, some of the most cyclical groups imaginable and some real dogs. When employment's strong, the Fed is your friend and the global economy is starting to rebound. So maybe these stocks can work. In the last few weeks, we've seen a terrific breakout in the metals and the basic material stocks that has a lot of smart people I know buzzing about how the time is at last right to invest in these down-and-out groups. As for energy, it's lagging behind the others, as you know, but Fitzpatrick's starting to see some signs of life there. If these three groups can continue climbing, well, that gives the bull market a lot more fuel, even though I know that the actual stocks that are left in this cohort aren't that big when it comes to market capitalization anymore. Let's start with the daily chart of the S&P Metals and Mining ETF, and that's called the XME. Now, this group peaked early last year and then promptly fell about 40% before finding a bottom last December at around 25. Remember, that was when the Fed decided it had to change its mind. We've been, and, and get more bullish, we've been in a synchronized global expansion, which was great for the metals. But then the rest of the world started losing steam, and the U.S. economy got gut punched by the Fed in the fourth quarter, as I just mentioned. And that's why the metals and mining stocks went out of style on the Wall Street fashion show. Just to show you, Fed says they got to keep raising rates. Obviously, things go bad. Then the Fed relents and then things go higher. That's what you need to know. Uh, Since then, Fitzpatrick points out that each rally in the XME has had a lower high. Okay, think about this lower high than the previous one. You can see how the ETF's 200-day moving average has been putting a ceiling on it over the past year. And that ceiling tilts down. However, while the highs keep getting lower, the lows were flat. You know what this is called? This is called a flat triangle pattern. Flat triangle pattern. According to Fitzpatrick, when you see this kind of formation within a downtrend, you know it's only a matter of time before something's got to give. Sooner or later, the ceiling comes so close to the floor that a breakout is unavoidable. The question is whether it'll be a breakout to the upside or the downside. So, again, let's keep this in mind. As these get narrow, 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 something's got to give. 
Well, a couple of weeks ago, we got the answer. The XME finally broke out above its 200-day moving average, and it was a decisive move. Suddenly, the old ceiling is now the new floor. And within a few weeks, Fitzpatrick predicts that the shorter-term 50-day moving average will cross above the 200-day moving average. This is what's known as a golden cross, if we get it. And that's the kind of incredibly bullish pattern that technicians just salivate for. Once that happens, well, then the new uptrend will be confirmed. I, I should say one if it happens. I shouldn't say once when it happens because it still might fail. How about the material select sector SPDER ETF? The XLB this time. This group's actually been trending higher for most of the year, creating a different kind of flat triangle pattern. See, with the green lines. Well, the XLB made a series of higher lows. Its highs kept running into the same ceiling of resistance at 59. But just like with the metals ETF, when you see a flat triangle, the breakout, as as these coordinates kind of, you know, come together, well, something's got to give again. When the SLB's up for the year, it hasn't, it, it's up, but it hasn't really been keeping pace with the broader S&P 500. But a couple weeks ago, the basic materials ETF finally broke out to the upside. It's currently at $59.62. Fitzpatrick thinks that now it's got a lot more room to run. So we've got the metals and the basic materials, two of the core components of an economic expansion. When these groups are strong, you know that manufacturing is doing better than expected. And there's pricing power for finished goods. We just need one more sector to start working before we can round out the natural resources trifecta. And that's the one that, you know, I dislike so much, energy. Unfortunately, the energy cohort's in worse shape. And uh, you can see that's just not as pretty a picture. I want you to take a look at this is the XLA. All right. The energy select uh, sector spider. That's the SPDR ETF. Technically, the energy cohort's still stuck in downturn. Fitzpatrick points out that both the 50-day moving average and the 200-day moving average are trending lower, which means there's not much for the bulls to cheer about here. Every time the energy group tries to rally, it runs into a seemingly unbreakable ceiling of resistance at the 200-day moving average. And I grow more and more wary of recommending any of them, even the best ones. However, Fitzpatrick believes this downtrend is ending. See, the XLE has actually made a triple bottom here. And that starts right here. That's one bottom. That's two bottom. Here's the third bottom. All right. Uh, and that's where the lower uh, the lows from December of 2018 hold up. At the same time, the consolidation over the past month has occurred at a higher level than the triple bottom pattern. So here's the consolidation. Now, the XLE is headed uh, higher again, setting up another test of this 200-day moving average, and that's the blue line. Uh, but this time, we're coming at it, that test from a much higher level. So rather than just from here, we're coming at it from here. Certainly better launching pad. The bulls want to see a breakout here the same way we got a breakout in the metals ETF last week. Fitzpatrick thinks it may take a while for this to happen. We might be uh, earlier, but it's definitely something you should watch for in the weeks ahead. Now, here's my view. It wouldn't surprise me if he's right. We've seen some very strong action versions in Slumberjay. My travel trust owns that one. Halliburton, those are two oil service stocks over the past few months, which suggests that, well, that group may have finally bottomed. Of course, a lot of people have been burned before betting on a turn in energy, though, including me and my travel trust, because we own a couple of some real clunkers in this patch. Uh, but then you'd have all three sectors going higher, metals, miners, mining, and oil. That's pretty bullish. The bottom line here, the charts as interpreted by Dan Fitzpatrick suggest that the metals in mining and basic materials place are headed higher. And even the energy cohort might be ready to turn soon. If that's the case, then 2020 could be a very good year for this bull market. Even as, I'm going to tell you point blank, I am not yet a believer in this part of the market. Stick with Kramer. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. 
In unprecedented times, access to the right information can help you make better informed investing decisions. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to providing a range of relevant educational content, like timely articles, informative webcasts, and access to daily live market news, so you can stay on the path to becoming a smarter investor. Learn more at tdameritrade.com slash market hub. TD Ameritrade, where smart investors get smarter. A little over a year ago, I recommended a fresh face IPO by the name of Yeti Holdings, Y-E-T-I. This is a company that makes all sorts of high-performance outdoor gear, especially coolers and anything you can use to drink. Tumblers, bottles, mugs, stuff I have to say I really like. It's, it's perfect when you go camping or just go to a tailgate party. Or I used one this morning and hot coffee on the way to work. Yeti had just come public at $18 in October of 2018, and the stock debuted with a whimper trading down to 17 and change by November 19th. And that's when I gave it my blessing for speculation. I told you that Yeti was far from perfect, but this company had a premium brand, a solid growth story, and a rapidly expanding digital direct-to-consumer business, all of which made it too good to ignore it, just 17 smackers. Now, because the fourth quarter of last year was such a meat grinder for the stock market, Yeti proceeded to get hammered down to 12 bucks at its lowest last December. But after that, it came roaring back like so many other stocks. By April, it was trading above $30. What a move, huh? See, that's the kind of thing we're always trying to look for. Uh, but it's been stuck there, bouncing around the highs, 20s, low 30s since then. If you bought the stock where I recommended it, and there was about a month where you could have gotten it even lower, Yeti's now giving you a 75% gain. But that was just as true eight months ago. Yeti seemed to make a double top in April and July, peaking in the mid-30s and then coming back down. At these levels, the stock started to seem expensive. And it sure didn't help that the trade war with China kept escalating because more than half of Yeti's products are made, yes, in the People's Republic. Generally speaking, the tariffs have done a lot less damage to our economy as a whole than most of the experts have predicted. But if you make things in China and sell them here, well, you know, it's been a rough time. The result, Yeti's stock keeps oscillating back and forth, stuck in the trading range. However, in the past few weeks, a couple of bullish analysts have predicted that this thing is ready to break out to the upside. You know what? I am saying right now I think they got a compelling argument. First, though, you need to know what's been holding this stock back since its peak at 36 since the end of April, uh, near the end of April. See, at the beginning of May, Yeti reported a solidly better than expected quarter with me, but the stock had run up going into the earnings. And while management raised their forecast, they didn't raise it enough to satisfy the bulls. Stock got hammered down nearly 9% on the news. Then a few days later, Yeti announced a 9.5 million share secondary offering, which priced at 28.50. Because the company's private equity backers, it had been a private company owned by P.E., wanted to ring the register. Suboptimal. By the beginning of June, the stock had sunk all the way back to 23. A couple of months later, Yeti makes a miraculous recovery. Stock roars higher going into the next quarter, which they reported at the end of July. It actually surged to a new all-time high at 38 bucks and change a couple of days before the report. Things are looking good again. And what happens? Well, once again, Yeti delivers better than expected results, coupled with disappointing guidance. I know many of you called when that happened saying, hey, why did that stock go down? The number's better than expected. It's always the guidance people. Meanwhile, management insists that they'll be able to mitigate the impact of the, of the tariffs. By late July, they were already looking at a 10% import duty starting in September. Over the next three days, the stock loses 15% of its value. And by late August now, it's all the way back to 25 what a roller coaster. So far, so frustrating, right? But the latest earnings report, the one at the end of October, it was different. This time, Yeti gave you a clean beat and a clean raise. 
Yep, they delivered better than expected results and also substantially raised their full-year earnings forecast. You got some really good sales growth here, up 17%. Companies direct sales business, digital, so on fire, up 31%. Wholesale up 9%. Drinkware's killed up 21%. Coolers aren't doing badly either, up 13%. Oh, and Yeti's gross margin expanded by 270 basis points because the company's been so good at cutting costs. You know, that was exactly what we wanted to see if you're a bull. But apparently, again, it wasn't good enough for Wall Street because the stock got hammered that day, down 4% on the news. It's just like this stock cannot catch a break. Then a few days later, we got another negative catalyst as Yeti announced a 10 million shares secondary. That's the second one this year so that these private equity shareholders could ring the register once more. The stock had been trading at 33 and then the secondary price of $29. Again, suboptimal. I mean, a lot of this is self-inflicted, whether it be the forecast or whether it be these big sellers from inside. Just when Yeti finally seems to have gotten its act together, private equity overhang causes the stock to get slammed. And that's when the analysts at last started coming to Yeti's defense, which is bring me up to pretty much now. On November 8th, Baird, good firm, designates Yeti as a fresh pick and reiterates their $45 price target. Their thesis, the last quarter was good, the next quarter should be even stronger thanks to the direct-to-consumer business and the estimates for 2020 may well be too low. Given that the stock had just experienced a dramatic pullback, the analysts at Baird argued that it was simply too cheap to ignore. When Baird really dug into the quarter, they found that Yeti's core product assortment was up 20% year over year. That's nice. I mean, actually, it's pretty phenomenal. The company also seems like they've got a solid understanding of digital marketing, yet the stock was trading at a 25% discount to its peers. And that's why Baird felt like they had to pound the table. Then, in what I thought was the reason why we had to do this piece, and frankly, I think you're getting a chance because I think it should be up here now, Goldman Sachs joined the party. They upgraded Yeti from hold to buy. They have been the skeptic. They've raised their price target to 37. They love the brand, love the innovative coolers, love that Yeti's products are now being sold at Lowe's. A very special promotion there. Marvin Ellison, CEO of Lowe's, actually mentioned on the conference call. And they love the rapidly expanding digital business. Even though Yeti does have some major exposure to the trade war with China, 57% of the sales come from the PRC, Goldman argues that the risk-reward here is very much skewed to the upside. My view. I, I'm honestly not that worried about the tariffs, and not because I expect a trade deal sometime soon. I don't. It's just that Yeti's been working overtime to mitigate the damage of cutting costs, strong-arming their suppliers into eating the cost of any tariff hikes and simply raising prices if necessary, and those prices are sticking. Remember, this is a premium brand, which makes it much easier for Yeti to pass on the cost of the tariff to you, the consumer. Now, I don't like that the company's private equity back, backers still own 35% of the darn business, but that's much less of an overhang than it was a year ago. Finally, you'll hear people fret that Yeti's the stock is expensive. I think that's absurd, frankly. I, I, the stock sells for less than 23 times next year's earnings estimates, despite having 17% sales growth in the latest quarter. That's not expensive when uh, related to that sales growth. The bottom line, after initially roaring higher at the beginning of the year, Yeti spent the last eight months just marking time. But I agree with the analysts both at Baird and Goldman. Come 2020, it will be Yeti's time to shine. I think the worry is overblown. Stock is inexpensive. I want you to stop fretting about China. They've mitigated the damage from the tariffs. And do some buying of Yeti. Let's go to Chris in Wisconsin. Chris. Hey, Jim. Booyah. Booyah, Chris. What's up? Hey, about three months ago, I talked to you about the stock CWH, Marcus right. Lemonis's Camping World stock. Right. At the time, you weren't really high on the stock. Since True. then, it's gone on a nice run and has issued two special dividends. 
curious to hear your current thoughts on the stock and what the special dividend is all about. Well, I do have to tell you that yesterday we got a, a, a what's called a comp. Uh, we got a, uh, a number from Thor and this, the Thor's big RV company. And they said some good things. And it looks like that the big, uh, let's say, overhang is um, over. I think we should have Marcus back on the show. I go back and forth with him on Twitter. I think he's a terrific spokesman for the situation. And better to get it from Norris's mouth than to get it from me. Let's go to Jason in Alabama, please. Jason. Jim, thanks for having me on again. It's great oh, to talk sure. to you, buddy. Sure. Good to have you. Okay. Uh, back on March 21st, I called in to ask you about Callaway Golf. Mm-hmm. You advised me at that point to buy more of it and hang on to it. I then purchased the stock at $15.80. Now, it's up over 25% since then, up above 21 and floating close to its 52-week high. My question for you is, with Callaway's price target around $25, combined with them owning a 15% stake in Topgolf, a company that could potentially IPO next year, should I trim my position? And no, play no, we like you. We, we, we look at this very regularly, and we like the situation. We're glad we nailed it and helped you make money, but we do not want register wrong here. We think that there is more upside to Callaway Golf. All right, New Year, New Yeti. It's this stock's time to shine. I bet you it's a good holiday season, and your time to do some buying before we find out. All right, much more mad money ahead. In the 2018 NFL season, teams saw 45% of fans connecting to Wi-Fi, a 150% increase from the 2013-2014 NFL season. I'm eyeing the company that helps make it happen. Then people are always asking me, how do you play the trade talks? Well, tonight I'm offering you answers. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. This has been a brutal few months for networking hardware plays. Cisco's been hammered. Arista Network's been obliterated. What about a smaller, more speculative play like Extreme Networks? Extreme is a roll-up. Their goal is to challenge the incumbent players by making a series of acquisitions, establish themselves as the first cloud-driven end-to-end enterprise networking company. In fact, after the acquisition of Arrowhive Networks over the summer, Extreme now has more than a billion dollars of cloud networking business. Could that cloud component give them an edge? And more important, is that edge enough to offset the broader weakness in this entire networking space. Let's take a closer look with Ed Myrcourt. He's the president and CEO of Extreme Networks. Learn more about his business and where it's headed. Mr. Myrcourt, welcome to Mad Money. Thank Good to you, see you, Ed. Jim. Have a seat. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Okay, first time on. Why don't you run through the uh, some of the exciting things that are going extreme, of which there are many. And also, I do want you to talk about the NFL relationship, and not just because the Eagles beat the Giants last night. <laughs> you had to say it. Had to. You had to Absolutely say it. Absolutely had to. Well, so if we look at Extreme it's a different company than most people would remember Extreme from years back because we've made these acquisitions. We knew four years ago we had to get scale, right? right. We've made our way up. Of all the players in networking, we're the only one that came from that lower quadrant you know, with Gartner, which right. is a big barometer for all enterprise networking, and we went all the way up to leadership quadrant. Right. So that was a big deal. And now we're a challenger with small companies like Cisco and HPE. Okay, now... You so that's have... part of the issue, right? All so right. for us, we're competing as larger companies, but we have better technology, better solutions, and our, obviously, in our opinion. Now, we know they'll argue with that. They'll argue with that, but we also have third-party providers like Broadcom, who would argue with us. Now, you have a fellow from uh, Broadcom CA who's obviously got a very tight relationship. Yes, well, we're we're tight with Broadcom, and with the CA acquisition, 
we have the, the, the former number two finance guy from right. CA who came aboard at Extreme. But the, but the Broadcom has got the best merchant silicon, I mean, end to end. And it's really not about Cisco anymore for okay. driving networking, which mm -hmm. is kind of interesting because they have 55, 60% market share. Right. It's, it's really about the cloud guys. So it's really going to be, you know, AWS and Google yeah. and Microsoft. Amazon Web sure. Services, Google. They're the ones that are really driving it. And if you look at Broadcom, it's their merchant silicon that's with these hyperscale cloud providers out there or through Arista to these hyperscalers. And then they're also in the iPhone. So, like, you know, if you look at iPhone 11, for example, mm -hmm. they have the chip. So at the end, end to end, it's Broadcom chipsets and merchant silicon that's programmable. All we do is write software to their silicon. Got it. Now, you are a worldwide company. You talked about Germany, sometimes tepid, Italy, sometimes tepid, but you're everywhere. Right. Yeah. I mean, so this is uh, some of it's from Arrowhive, this acquisition. Tell us about that, because it really puts you on the map. So what, what, it, what Arrowhive does is it brings us to the cloud. We've okay. always been software driven. I right. just mentioned our R&D is all about mm -hmm. writing software. The industry has changed. There's old Cisco, right. which they were very good in 90s and the 2000s, right. really conditioning the market to hire engineers to write code to boxes in a network. OK. OK. You don't have to do that anymore. Now it's about software. So you have software-driven networking. But they have Meraki. And now we can put you that can in the cloud. contrast yourself with Meraki in your they, conference They do. Call. But that's wireless and switching at the edge. Right. It doesn't talk to the rest of their portfolio. Okay. They Fair can't enough. go end-to-end. -end. So right, that's, okay. that's a problem. And it's a problem for enterprise customers because they can't go end-to-end. -end. Okay. So we don't see, obviously, consumers don't see Extreme, but they have used Extreme if they go to a stadium in the NFL. So you got it. So 26 of the 32 NFL stadiums... They're using extreme, either wireless, wired, or analytics. So we're the exclusive provider of wireless for the NFL. Okay, so let's say you weren't there. What would happen if we tweet? What would happen if we try to take pictures? It's so all 77,000 of us at the game. Well, obviously, you know, the quality is important, right? right. It's critical. And, and the NFL is having a great season. Yep. And it's all about the fan experience there. Mm -hmm. So they're driving that. So when you're at the stadium, you know, it's important that, Wi-Fi is working. We partner with Verizon on that and uh, other carriers as well because you want to have a good networking experience. It's, it's the holiday season. Right. FedEx and UPS, big customers. Really? All your packages getting there on time, it's running through extreme. And we have just so many stories about the 50,000 know, enterprise customers that we have. And really interesting use cases. Now, give me, uh, what's the game plan here? Because I know you want to be more than a billion. I mean, is, yes. are, are there more companies left to buy? Because you've become acquisitive. You're trying to uh, get, uh, uh, I'm sure you need more heft even than a billion to go against some of these big guys. Yeah, well, we have to be opportunistic. Right. The candidates aren't obvious for They're us. They're not, okay. They're not obvious. So right. we have to be opportunistic if we want to continue to acquire. But uh, we could. And, you know, that's something that we'll consider Right now, we're excited, excited about the cloud mm -hmm. because of this migration of networking. Okay. And cloud really changes things because of the efficiencies right. that it brings. Um, the idea of having a centralized network management mm -hmm. instead of these disparate um, network controls sort of okay. throughout a network now brings a lot of flexibility. Uh, it brings speed to our cloud. And then it also brings a lot of savings and, and economy. Excellent. Well, look, I'm glad you came on and explained the story, and I'm glad you make it so that we can tweet and do all the picture-taking we want, because otherwise, why not just be at home? That's what I have to say. That's Ed Meyer, Courtney's the president and CEO of Extreme Networks. This is a speculative stock. I want you to take a look at it. There's a lot of stuff, including a good conference call. They have money's back. Get the
It is time! It's time for the light round! And then the lightning round's over. Are you ready? Skate down and cover the lightning round. Let's start with Jason New York. Jason. Jim, big Buffalo Bills. Booyah. First time, long time. Whoa. Hey, could uh, be first time, long time in the playoffs there, too. What's going on? That's right. Hey, uh, most cannabis stocks were down over 3% today, but uh, GW Pharma was up over 6%. Is this a long-term hold? I have said it's a long-term hold. Now, remember, we had to do a piece which just said you had to sell the cannabis stocks. I feel like cannabis and oil are two very, very difficult areas. Uh, But I think GW Pharma is actually a pharmaceutical that has cannabis as opposed to a recreational play. Let's go to Crystal in California. Crystal. Happy holidays, Mr. Kramer. Thank you. Thank you. I love your show. Thank you. I'm thinking of adding more Zura stock to my portfolio, symbol Z-U-O. You know what? They're in the penalty box for me, uh, Crystal. They they just haven't delivered. I like the idea of subscription economy so much, but you have to do the numbers in the end. Let's go to David in Virginia. David. Booyah, Professor Kramer. Hi. Hey, energy stocks seem to have been in the doghouse for a while now, but uh, do you think it's time to buy a stock like Enterprise Products Partners, EPD, or EPP? I am not in favor of buying them. If you want to buy them because you want the income, that would be the one that I would buy because it's got very stable cash flows. Let's go to Patrick in Connecticut. Patrick! Hey, Jim. Love your show. Thank you. Thank um, you. Uh, calling in about Enphase. Oh, boy. I, I hold it. Yeah. I own it. Wondering um, if I should be adding to it. No, no. It's um, up 400%. This is a solar solution play that I am not going to. Uh, I just. Look, it, it, it's up a great deal. And it seems a little uh, rock, reckless for me to come in at this level. Let's go to Cindy in Nevada. Cindy. Hi, Jim. How Hi. are you? Good morning. Hi, good to talk to you. I'm asking about a stock that I own, MyMedics. It's MDXG. Right. Um, okay, so this is a, a medical device company. Uh, if we're going to buy medical device companies, we're going to go with the biggest and the best. We're going to go with things like Boston Scientific or Medtronic. Those are uh, much better companies. Let's go to Brian in Missouri, please. Brian. Big booyah from St. Louis, Jim. Okay. Love the show, buddy. All right. Hey, the company I really like is Aaron Corp. I love the scientific research, you know, through the reducer trial and evaporate trial. I was just thinking, uh, what do you think of the company as a whole? And with all the Very good speculative situation. We've liked it the whole way through ups and downs and fixed and thins, and I'm not deviating. Let's go to Kirk in New York. Kirk. Kramer. Yeah. This is Booyah for you. Thank you. Um, looking at Western Digital, I bought in March around four. Very inexpensive stock, to- but I really have to prefer Marvell Technology, MRBL. I think it's a vastly misunderstood situation. People don't understand that's the best 5G play now that it's come down a lot. I think that that's the one to be in. Chuck in Arizona. Chuck! Greetings, Professor Kramer. How are you, sir? I'm good, Chuck. How about you? Oh, that's too bad. Just want to, um, are you aware that your music intro to your show sounds like guitar riff from Led Zeppelin? How many more times? No, that's new to me. But I'm I'm a quick learner. Thank you. Uh, um, my stock is uh, it's a Zynga. Z n g a. Zynga's making a move here. I mean, Zynga's making a move. I mean, a gaming play. Uh, that's funny. I again now here I prefer Activision Blizzard, which my charitable trust owns. Had a very nice move today. We were working, working with Zeb Fema trying to figure out what's going on. It's up 20% for the year. That's one I'd like to buy higher quality, higher quality. Let's go to Betty in Michigan. Betty! 
Hi, Jim. Booyah. Thank Booyah, you for Betty. my call. Uh, I was calling about out front media. What do you think about that? Yeah, the, out of home, the home advertising. No, too hard for me. Boy, am I ever against advertising. So maybe I'm just too beleaguered from the Viacom C, which has been so horrible. Uh, but you know, I'm not going to go there. Let's go to Cesar in California, please. Cesar. Hey, Jim. Hi. I'm a 20-year-old college student, and I'm looking for an inexpensive airline stock to add to my portfolio. How do you like that, Luke? Uh, JetBlue, no, no, look, I think that the others, uh, you know, I liked uh, you all, United Continental, but then Oscar Munoz just retired. I, I like American. I think that's cheaper, too. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. People always ask me, how do you play the trade talks? They want to know my insight into the opportunities that can be gleaned and the sources who are worth trusting when it comes to a potential deal with the Chinese. I always say the same thing. Stop playing. Start investing. In the years since I have known President Trump, dating back to well before his presidency, he keeps his counsel close and thrives on unpredictability as a way to get the upper hand in negotiation. That means Trump is not easily gained. Honestly, if you think you're doing a good job of gaming his decisions, you're probably going to be disappointed. Even his closest advisors might not know what he'll do. He may not even know himself until the moment he tweets or announces his decision in an impromptu press conference. At the end of the day, trying to predict something as unpredictable is a fool's game. I would love to be able to figure out the president's next move in these trade negotiations and tell you them. But unless you can see the future, there's just no way to know. So when I say stop playing and start investing, I mean you should stop trying to bet on the trade talks. Start looking for the stocks of high-quality companies that are worth buying, regardless of how things go with China. Bye, bye, bye. Take Home Depot. While this company is mostly domestic, it's widely viewed as being caught in the crosshairs of the trade war. If the president can't reach a deal with China to forestall the next round of tariff hikes, there's a good chance Home Depot stock will get slammed because it sells a lot of goods made in the PRC. But that doesn't mean you should sell it ahead of the negotiations. See, Home Depot's got a big analyst data more. I know management believes the stock didn't get a fair shake after that last quarter, which is widely panned because of an execution glitch, and we couldn't expect the same store sales. Now, we've owned Home Depot for my travel trust for some time. And while I also have become a fan of Lowe's, too, thanks to the terrific work of former HD uh, executive Marvin Ellison, who's now the CEO of Lowe's, there's no denying that the despots come down to attractive levels here. Still, let's stick with this trade issue. At tomorrow's analyst meeting, I expect Home Depot's management will address the cost of the tariffs in depth. In fact, I'm betting they'll quantify the impact right down to the pennies per share. If it turns out that the tariffs won't actually do much damage, well, that changes things. Why? Because let's say if the tariffs are no big deal for Home Depot, but the stock gets slammed, say, on Monday, if the trade talks potentially fall apart, then you're going to be getting a terrific chance to buy the stock into weakness that's undeserved. You'll be armed and ready. So stop trying to bet on the trade war. Start betting on stocks that are unfairly punished whenever there's bad news about the tariffs. Companies like Home Depot, if they tell a good story about tariff mitigation tomorrow. And that's just one example. Once you stop betting on the outcome of the talks, start looking for opportunities created by the ridiculous swings in the market every time there's some news about the trade war, whether or not the news is accurate. You'll be in much better shape. Everything else is just rank speculation, people. Useless for investing and suspect even for trading. Just think about it. How the heck are any of us supposed to bet on the trade talks when the president won't even show his cards to his closest advisors? Believe me, I spent years making a television show with Larry Kudlow, who's now Trump's chief economic advisor. And I don't know what the guy's going to do. Unless your sources are much better than mine, 
You don't know either. And there's no point in trying to guess. So just don't do it. There are better uses of your time. Corrosive atmosphere that is Washington getting something done, even if it's something as significant as the United States, Mexico, Canada agreement. Well, it's just regarded as being either a, a gift to this guy or a gift to that person. Hey, look, this is something that promotes the gross domestic product and creates more jobs for Americans. And if that's wrong, if somehow that is uh, not constructive, I don't know what's left to say. I like to say it's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.